When I was first asked to speak, I didn't answer for about six weeks. Initially, I didn't say anything to anyone. Then very quietly, I asked myself, why me? Well, if you want me to speak, then I need something to say. Straight away, a phrase came into my head, one that Michael and I had thrown around a little in the season that we're currently walking. Over the course of the next week, every time I went onto Pinterest, there would be an image with the scripture presented in it. I've never liked or pinned it. It was a random coincidence. But I realised that I did have a hero, and I did think she was relevant, so I said yes. This morning I'd like to ask two things of you. The first, please be gracious to me. The second, please pray in the quiets of your souls that God's word will find your heart today and you will not be distracted by my shaky words. Allow me to introduce my hero. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. In preparing for today, I found out that academics suggest that she is first introduced to you as Hadassah to show her Jewish roots which has significant importance in her story. You and I know her as Esther. In preparing for this, I found it difficult to separate the lessons that the book of Esther and the woman of Esther can offer us today. So may I encourage you to please go back and read the book of Esther this week. For those of you who are not familiar with the book of Esther, here is a whistle-stop tour. It was written about 470 BC. The book's author is anonymous, however, we some believe it was Mordecai, mainly due to the way the text is written in an almost personal narrative. The story is set in Persia, and the key players are Esther, Mordecai, King Xerxes and Haman. In chapters 1 and 2, we see the current queen being removed, Esther being taken from her cousin and becoming part of the king's harem. There, she basically gets entered into a huge beauty contest with all of the other beautiful virgins of 127 different countries ruled by King Xerxes. She is personally chosen by the king and becomes queen. We also see Mordecai save the king's life, which, in a strange twist of fate, will go on to save his own. In chapters 3 and 4, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, a high official of the king. Haman becomes infuriated and plots to destroy all of the Jews in the kingdom. Some could say that this was a huge overreaction. Mordecai hears of the plot and reports it to Esther and pleads for her help. In chapters 5 to 10, Esther takes her petition to the king and pleads for the protection of the Jewish people from Haman's wicked plans. The Jewish people are saved by Esther's faith and courage. It's 10 chapters. It's really worth your time. And if you're looking for the book of Esther this morning, it's in the Old Testament and it sits between Nehemiah and Job, just before Psalms. I'm going to talk to you about the things that I've learned over the last few weeks and what I think we can take away with us today. I'm going to start with the lessons of the book of Esther and then I'm going to talk about Esther the woman. Hopefully you will be able to take these three truths home and apply them to your lives. First, don't make the mistake of not seeing God at work in ordinary ways. Second, do not write yourself off. And third, he wants us to live lives of greatness. The book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned at all. 
at all. It it suggested and inferred by the use of the word fasting. It mentions that Mordecai is clothed in sackcloth and mourning. And we know that through other books of the Bible, that when Jews wore this, they were praying and fasting. They were petitioning God. Yet the writer does not say that. Why? I've never really thought about this before, but Tim Keller highlights it so beautifully. So forgive me, I'm going to paraphrase the point. The Jews are in grave danger. In every other place in the Bible, when Jews get into trouble, God always saves them in a huge God-like way. Ten plagues, a fire, the parting of the Red Sea. It's obviously God. It's extraordinary. But not in Esther. There is nothing. No miracles, no visions, no angels, no armies. God seems to be silent. By the end of the book, we see a whole series of coincidences that happen time after time. And if it had happened at any other time, in any other way, the Jews would not have been saved. But they were saved. And it all started because a king got drunk and wanted to show off his wife. By Vashti saying no, Esther's life was set on a completely different course. What if Esther wasn't pretty, or what if Mordecai hadn't overheard the plan to kill the king? Or even the fact that he wasn't honoured there and then, as he should have been, but was honoured a while later, at the perfect time. Which brings me to my first point. Don't make the mistake of not seeing God at work in ordinary ways. God is working in your life in the most ordinary of ways to get you to where he wants you to be. His silence is not his absence. He is working out his promises. He is keeping his promises to you, even when it looks like he is doing nothing. Four years ago, I found myself in a very difficult season. I knew I was right where God had planted me and called me. I was the co-founder of my company, building something to glorify him. And I was, on top of that, I had been given the desires of my heart. I was pregnant. I was living out my dream, the dream. Very quickly, everything turned upside down and was sent into a spin that would later lead me to walk away from everything I had built. I would lose my dream, my vision. I really struggled to see God in the midst of it and in truth, I sometimes still get confused. But during that time, I held on to a song. The chorus is, Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You are with us in the fire and the flood. Faithful forever, perfect in love, you are sovereign over us. I held on to that promise that God is sovereign. This week I was asked, how do I encourage myself? And to be honest, I thought it to be a very odd question. I said I had no idea. In my head I was thinking, no, you you encourage other people? Mary, the lady asking told me that she puts promises on her fridge to remind her of God's truths in her in her life daily. She reminds herself on days when she cannot see God of what his truth is. So let me ask you, how do you encourage yourself? What promises should you be reminding yourself of? Claiming. And if you don't think you have any, ask God to show you the promises he has made to you. Esther, my hero. Who is Esther? She is an orphan, raised by her eldest cousin Mordecai. She was taken to become part of King Xerxes' harem. I'll get get to that in a moment. 
She was forced to hide everything that made her her, her culture, ethnicity, her faith. She endured a year of training for one night with the king, six months being bathed, bathed in oil of myrrh and six months of cosmetic treatments. This worked because she became the queen and finally she risked everything to save her people from death. I think Esther chapter 4 is probably one of the most well-known passages in the Bible and verse 14 is one that many people have quoted. For such a time as this. As a young woman, I claimed this truth. This idea captured me. That you may have been born to do one thing in your life at that moment, would you be in or would you be out? I missed the journey, the story, the point. What I saw was some pretty girl who had been in a bath for the best part of a year and then God used her to save his people. I saw her obedience and submission, fear, timidity even. I thought she did nothing, but the story ended in a heroic blaze of brave glory. She saved her people. I missed that she had given God her will. I've briefly touched upon it, but I never fully understood what it meant for her to join King Xerxes' harem. She was taken. David Firth notes that none of the girls is said to have gone by their own choosing, because although the palace life may seem desirable, becoming a concubine in the harem was not stuff of fairy tales. Let me please elaborate on this for a moment. I am going to try and do this as PG as I can. Esther would have been 18 if she was lucky and there would only have been four possible outcomes at the, waiting for her at the end of the year. One, he didn't really like her so she would have been banished to live with the other concubines especially, essentially to live as a widow. She most likely would never have been called again but she couldn't have gone home and nor would another man have been allowed to be with her because she'd been spoilt. Second would have been, he would have thought she was okay and he might have called, called upon her from time to time, much like a plaything. The third would have been, he liked her enough to allow her to become one of his wives, which at least meant that their children would be heirs. The fourth option was that she would become queen. On the surface, it would be easy to ask, where is God in this? God is with Esther. God doesn't look at our outward appearances as we do. And it would have been easy from the first two chapters to wonder how Esther was going to save the Jews. It looks like she's blown it. She hides her faith, her culture, she conforms, she listens to everything that Mordecai says and is obedient. We are told that she listens to Haggai more than any other woman. She learns everything she can from him and she does everything that he suggests. On the surface, Esther is completely compliant. Feminists would be judging and annoyed. You would also be forgiven to, over, to look over her behaviour as submission, cowardliness or weakness. Or maybe she's learning to survive. Maybe this is where she starts from. But I believe that during the year of beauty treatments, God works with her, he grows her, and he turns her into something great. 
I believe that actually the year of treatment was in fact a year of training. Esther grows to be faithful, loyal, wise, discerning, teachable, humble, brave. Right the way through the story we hear that Esther is gaining favour from first Haggai and then King Xerxes. I think that this is an indication that God is very much at the heart of this story. I would also suggest that this is due to the main character's obedience. We see how Esther is obedient to Mordecai. Mordecai is obedient to God's teachings. Looking after the weak and the vulnerable, loving his kin. Mordecai still watches over Esther even when she is no longer in his care. That is great love. That is loyalty. Mordecai's continued care could also show that while the king may have taken her, he has not stripped her of who she is or whose she is. Mordecai has not left her. He walks the king's gates daily and this could be yet another way that the author is showing that God is watching over Esther's life, that he is working in the ordinary. The other thing that I've learned from their behaviour to one another is that God's people have different priorities, as should we. Faith Firth states, Life outside a controllable Jewish context means making decisions about how we live in a way that is true to the intention of such matters, even if traditional forms could not be followed. Just as Christians in many parts of the world today make decisions about how to practice their faith in an environment that might be hostile to it. But Haggai's favour meant that she was elevated to the best position in the harem. She was given the best treatments, but it's also suggested in my study notes that she is given special treatment when it comes to food. This is significant. God is working out his good. He is in the detail. The favour Esther finds points to a greater purpose being worked out. It's never mentioned why or how she gains this favour, but what is made clear is by her actions, is that both her and Mordecai have made God's priorities their priorities. They are living out their faith and staying faithful to God's ways. You will see by the end she is a brave heart, Which leads me to my second point. Do not write yourself off. You cannot write yourself off when God is at play. God persistently gives his grace to people and uses them for his glory. God has her by the hand. He loves her and he's turning her into something great. He brings her to the point where she is willing to give up everything for her Lord and King, for her people. And that is, what is, that is what makes her truly beautiful. I would like to focus on chapters 4 and 5, which we heard at the start. There are a few things to, to note here. I don't think it's a mistake that Mordecai knew all of the details of the political situation in Persia, and Esther didn't. I think that this shows that it is important to fully know what's going on, in the world that we live in. There is power in God's word and there is power in God's people. If there are situations where we can have a positive effect, I think we should step up. Having a world view matters to God. 
But the main observations to be made in chapter 4 is the incredible turnaround that we see in Esther. She goes from obeying every word to calling the shots. All the training is coming into play. If I die, I die, she says in verse 16. But it's not come that easy. We see in verse 14, Mordecai being quite harsh with her. Do not think that because you live in the house of the king, you're the one Jew that's going to get out of this alive. If you persist on saying silent at this time, help and, ad- help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from some other place. But you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made king for just such a time as this. Mordecai shows Esther that their God will save his people one way or another. But if she does not step up, she may lose her life. She gives God her will. There is a choice in this that should not be missed. She chooses to give God her will. She puts her faith in God. And by doing so, she is simply saying, yes, I will play my part in your bigger plan, God, in your bigger story. She is using her training to be the best version of herself. But not only that, she paces herself. She has obviously learned patience and she clearly knows how to get the best from her husband. She does not blurt out her request as soon as she gets in front of the king. She waits. She meets with him three times before she finally asks for her life and that of her people. Once again, we see that timing is everything. She has grown to be strong and wise. The other thing that I note is that all of the believers joined together. They all fasted. Esther was the one going in to see the king. But all of the Jews stood with her, one in, all in. Imagine what we could do if we got behind every person in this church, a state, region, nation. Imagine what transformation we could see. I will leave you with these thoughts. After starting this study and thinking it was about one brave girl, I see now the truth. At the core of this story of Esther's life is that God is sovereign over us. He has been right there working out his rescue plan for his people through the obedience of two ordinary believers. There was no fire, no army. It was simply beautiful. The man who tried to kill God's people died on the very gallows that he built to bring them harm. There is poetry in that. How did God do it? Through Esther, my ordinary everyday hero, an obedient, disciplined, wise, discerning, faithful, loyal, brave woman. It was all as a result of God's grace in her life, which gives me hope. Because if Esther can change the world, We can change ours. Which leads me to my final point. He wants us to live lives of greatness. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. 
John 10 verse 10. What that greatness looks like is between you and your God. When I read in the message of Esther by David Firth, just as Christians in many parts of the world today have to make a decision about how to practice their faith in an environment that might be hostile to it. I immediately got this vivid memory of my childhood. I had the honour and the privilege of growing up in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, both Muslim states. I think the first memory I have of my mother's greatness was when I was Finn's age, four. My mum had this very big blue and white paperback NIV. It was always in the centre of the suitcase, easy for security in the Mutawa, the religious police, to find it. They would take it out and tell my mum that it wasn't allowed in, her con- in their country and she would quietly and firmly put it back. But the memory I got this week was from when I was around eight. The usual dance began. The Bible was now much more used and fragile. But this time I remember becoming aware that my mum was not dealing just with the Matawa, but also with my dad. Just leave it, Joan. I remember my mum looking at my dad and very firmly saying, no, I won't leave it. Then turning back to the man holding the Bible, it's just for me, it's my Bible and I want it back. The man was clearly exhausted by my mother. He walked off with the Bible in hand and came back moments later, threw it in the suitcase and shouted, fine, go. There are many, many other stories I could tell you about how my mother lived out her faith in a hostile environment but I think this one illustrates my point she put God's word above everything we did not go to church all of our outward appearance suggests that we didn't have a faith yet through her obedience discipline faithfulness loyalty and love for her God when people met with her they met with Jesus while she was sat in the desert She encouraged other believers globally and her prayer ministry to this day is prolific. Her legacy is great. Yet to the outside world, there is nothing great about my mother. God wants us to live lives of greatness. What that greatness looks like is between you and your God. But I think it begins with giving him your will, your yes and being the best version of yourself through his grace. I'd like to leave you with the song that I mentioned earlier. It's called Sovereign Over Us. Thank you.